Father, we are so grateful for the sacrifice of Christ this morning as we take a few minutes to focus our minds on what he has done for us. I pray that you would help us to set aside every distraction and hear your voice this morning. We don't deserve what you have given to us, but you do it so freely, so lovingly, so graciously, so generously. We ask this morning as we celebrate that sacrifice in your presence that you would be honored by that and that our hearts would be reminded of just how much we have to be thankful for. In Christ's name, amen. I think that's my new favorite song. I don't know how many people listen to Wren Collective. Uh, if you know, anybody, does anybody know Wren Collective? Listen to, if you don't, you should. Uh, they're an awesome group from uh, Northern Ireland. And uh, they wrote that song. We went and saw them in concert last, last month, April, I guess it was, that we went and saw them. And I was pretty sure, we were in about the fourth row, and I was pretty sure that the guy who was singing could probably hear me singing it back to him when they did it in concert. Uh, I just love that song. I love what it talks about. I love the lyrics. Uh, I love just the thought of the sacrifice of Christ taking away our guilt and our shame and our sin. Uh, I, maybe you've experienced this before. You've been at home and uh, you've been uh, wandering through doing whatever it is that you do when you're at home taking care of things and, and you've walked into a room and you've seen something lying in the middle of the floor broken. And immediately you suspect your child or your grandchild has had something to do with this, but they don't seem to be anywhere to be found. And so you wander around into some other rooms of your house until you find them, maybe hiding under the bed or in the closet or something like that. The reason why kids have a tendency to do that when they've broken something is because of their guilt, right? Their guilt, their shame, the knowledge that they've done something wrong and they don't know what they can do to fix it. You don't have to teach them that. That comes very naturally. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, if you're very familiar with the story, but that happened to the very first people who ever walked on this earth, Adam and Eve. Do you know the story? They were living in this perfect place that God had created for them. He had provided everything that they needed. And he said, guys, you can do whatever you want with what I've given to you here. It's all for you. You can use it. You can eat it. You can cultivate it. You can do whatever you want. Just don't touch this tree. That's mine. And of course, what did they do? They did. They found the tree. They picked the fruit. They ate it. And then something very interesting happened after that, if you read that passage, it's in Genesis chapter 3. It says, immediately after they ate the fruit, does anybody know what the next statement is? It says, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. You know what their eyes were opened to? They were opened to their guilt and to their shame. And the next thing is very revealing. It says, and so they hid themselves in the garden. You see, they had this, this wonderful habit, 
this wonderful schedule with God that every day in the cool of the evening they would walk with God in the garden and they would fellowship with him. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. They had this wonderful privilege and as soon as they ate that fruit, their eyes were opened, they realized their guilt and their shame and their sin, they hid themselves from God. And so do we. So do we. Because of our sin, because of our guilt, because of our shame, we hide ourselves. We run. We step back from our relationships with our spouses or our children or our friends, those that are closest to us, those that know us the best. We step back from those relationships. We become distant. We avoid. Why do we do that? Because of our sin, our guilt, our shame. We run. And can I say this to all of us that are here this morning, me included? Our sin is devastating. It's terrible. It's serious. And our guilt and shame, this may not be where you think I was going to go this morning, but our guilt and shame is warranted. We should be ashamed because of our sin, because it damages us. It damages others in our lives. It damages our relationship with God. And sin should never be taken lightly. But can I equally say to all of us today that because of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel that there is hope. To those that are here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Christ. You don't have that freedom that he gives. There is hope. There is rescue. There is another way to live. There is freedom from guilt and shame. You see, our guilt and shame is warranted because of our sin, but we don't have to stay there. That's the gospel. And to those of us who are Christ followers, I am, many of you are, you don't need to hide. And even though you're already a Christ follower, can I just suggest to you this morning that you and I need the gospel every day. Not just on that day back when, when we trusted Jesus Christ, but we need the gospel every day. And I am echoing the words of our new song. Actually, Joe referred to them too just a few moments ago. Ever since I heard this song for the first time, these words have been ringing in my ears. I will preach the gospel to myself, for I am not a man condemned. I am not a man condemned. I do not have to live in condemnation because of my sin. I don't have to dwell in the midst of my guilt and my shame. I am not a man condemned. But I should be. I should be a man condemned. That's what the scripture says. And I was a man condemned. But I want you to understand this this morning, folks, and I want this thought to ring in your minds as we walk through this, that the death of Jesus Christ obliterates our guilt and shame. The death of Jesus Christ obliterates our guilt and shame. Listen to these words from Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. I'm not a man condemned, but I should be, and I was. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin. I think you know what the word dead means. It means lifeless. It means a corpse. (laughs) It means no life left and no possibility of any life left. That's us. That's you and me. That's where we are. But I want you to see in these next couple of verses seven things that God did through Jesus to obliterate our guilt and shame. Seven things. We're going to spend 25 minutes on each of the seven. Okay? So buckle up. Now, two minutes. How's that? Here's the first one. The first thing God did through Jesus to obliterate our guilt and shame, he gave us life. You see, here's the thing. We're dead because of what we've done, but we're alive because of what he's done. Says he gives us life. It's very interesting here that the phrase, he made us alive together, in Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was originally written in, that's one word. Made alive together is one word. Why do you think that's important? Let me tell you why I think that's important. Because he doesn't just say that God made us alive He made us alive together in Christ. Friends, listen to me. This cannot happen outside of Jesus Christ. Just like you walking into that room and seeing your late aunt's favorite vase broken into a thousand pieces on the floor because your son was throwing a baseball in the house after you told him a hundred times not to, And he is standing there, and he is shattered on the inside. Why? Because he knows there is no way he is going to be able to put that thing back together. I'd like to have little hidden cameras in some of the rooms of our houses sometimes because I think something happens, and I think our children are like, Oh boy, I've got to fix this before mom comes in. And they make an attempt. But I mean, that vase is in a thousand pieces. There is no way that kid is putting that thing back together. That's the picture. You are dead. I am dead. There is no chance that we are putting this back together on our own. That's why Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God made us alive together in Christ. Only possible in Christ. Here's the second thing he did. He forgave our sin. I love the word forgive and forgave. Do you know why? Because the most important part of it is in the word. Look at the word. He forgave all of our sin. Do you see a four-letter word in there that can stand alone? Do you see it? 
He gave. He forgave us. That's exactly what the word means. He gave it to us freely. There's nothing that we could do. Listen to this verse from Micah chapter 7. God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our sin underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Is God devastated by our sin? Is God mournful because of our sin? Does God grieve because of our sin? Is our sin serious? It is absolutely serious, folks. And we should not ever forget that. But God does not retain his anger forever. He treads our sin under his feet Because of his steadfast love, he casts our sin into the sea. He forgives us. Look at the third thing. He canceled our debt. How did he forgive our sin? He forgave our sin by canceling the debt. It literally means to wipe out or to obliterate. That's where I got the word obliterate for our main thought this morning. The death of Jesus obliterates our guilt and shame. It's from here. Because that's what this word canceled means. It means obliterate. I don't know if you knew this or not, but a little quick history lesson on the Roman and Greek empires. Uh, A lot of times when they were writing, they would have little wooden or slate or clay tablets. They could be anywhere. They found remnants of them as small as this, like a post-it note, I think is very interesting, or as big as this, like a notebook. And on the surface of the clay or the wood or the slate or whatever they had, they would put a layer of wax. And they would use a little stylus and they would write on the tablet. Take notes or make computations or whatever. And the reason why they did that is because after they were done with whatever they had written, guess what they could do? That's what this word means. Wipe it out. Cancel it. Obliterate it. Make it so that it never existed. And after they wiped that tablet clear, you couldn't tell that anything was written on there. And that's the picture that Paul uses. That's the word that he uses to describe what Jesus does to our sin. He wipes it out. He rubs it smooth. Notice that it says he, he canceled our debt with all of its legal demands. Another little nugget for you because I think it's very helpful for us to be able to enter into Paul's mind a little bit when the Spirit is inspiring him to write this, how he's thinking about it. What he's referring to actually is what used to happen in the legal system in this culture was that when there was a charge against you, when there was a debt that you had incurred, they actually had you write out the charges yourself. You wrote the charges yourself. In your own handwriting would be the record of the charges against you. And the reason for that is so that it would be public. I guess maybe in some ways we do the same thing today when you get the advertiser Democrat and you flip open to that pay everybody's favorite page and you get to see everybody that has <clears throat> interacted with law enforcement 
over the last week. It's public. Hey, it happened, and guess what? It's known. It's known. And that's what Paul is referring to here. This is the, this is the record. Who knows it? If it's public, who knows it? Well, I'll tell you one person who knows it. I know it because I did it. I know it. You know who else knows it? Satan knows it. He knows it. Have you ever been at a point in your life when you're kind of struggling with something? Sin, doubt, fear, anxiety, whatever it is. And you thought to yourself, how does Satan know to bother me about this? How does he get into my mind about this? Why am I always struggling with this same thing? Because, friends, Satan knows. He's not dumb. It's public. He knows what we struggle with. And this record of our sin is his chief accusation against us. And when we walk through life, and we've all probably had these times when, even for those of us that are Christ followers, and we say, well, I know that God forgave me, why do I still struggle with this? Because Satan likes to needle us with guilt and shame. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he... Uh, you know, wiped that clean, obliterated what was written on that record. Now, how did he cancel it? Because he couldn't just pretend it didn't happen. My friends, I am so grateful for the love and mercy and grace of God, but I cannot ignore the justice and the holiness of God because it's in the word as well. And we would do him a grave disservice as our God to overemphasize his love and grace and not talk about his holiness and justice. How could God cancel my record of sin? It happened. I know it. God knows it. Satan knows it. A lot of people that are close to me in my life know it. How does he cancel it? Well, the answer is in the fourth thing that God did through Jesus to obliterate our guilt and shame. Number four is this. He nailed our debt to the cross. He nailed our debt to the cross. I don't know exactly how this worked. It's not recorded for us in the record of Scripture. But at some point in eternity past, God looked at us I think he saw me and the Father and the Son being in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit saw me that debt has to be paid that debt of sin it has to be paid my holiness will not allow sin to occur, sin against my holiness, and not be paid. And Jesus said, 
there's only one way that debt can be paid. And there's only one person who can do it. And it's me. I'll do it. And so when the Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, they nailed the record of my sin there as well. He canceled the record of my debt by nailing it to the cross. Cross, Jesus' hand, my debt, spike. Nailed to the cross. Here's the fifth thing God did. He disarmed Satan. I don't like to rank verses in order of importance, but this is where I think it really starts to get good. If you thought this last part was good, this is really good. He disarmed Satan. Literally, this word means to strip of power and to strip of weapons. And I have something really exciting to tell you guys about this morning. I've been thinking about it all week. I shared it with Tim and Clow. We all happened to be in the office at the same time on, uh, on Tuesday. They were incredibly excited about it. I know Lisa will be excited about it. Christy might be excited about it. I'm super excited to talk to you guys this morning about Greek grammar. Just as exciting as English grammar, maybe just a little bit more. The word, the Greek word that Paul uses here that is translated for us disarmed is a very interesting word because it has two prefixes. Okay. I was just testing you to see if you were listening. That's not the exciting part. Okay. It has two prefixes. And what it really means is it emphasizes the depth of the disarming. And I tried to think of how I could explain this a little better. But in English, it's almost as if Paul is saying that Jesus super totally disarmed Satan. Okay? I'm not making light of this. I'm really trying to explain it so that you understand. That's what Paul is saying. He super totally disarmed Satan. He didn't just disarm Satan. He didn't just totally disarm Satan. He super totally disarmed him. It's the depth of the disarming. Now, here's the exciting part. I know you're thinking, please, no more. My heart can't take it. But there's more. This is the first time literary ancient history, literary scholars, I didn't dig this one out myself, okay, have told us that this is the first time 
in the historical record of the Greek language that this word has been used. No one had ever used this. It's never been recorded that anyone had ever used this word before. Paul used it when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write the book of Colossians. You know what that means? Paul had to make up a word to describe how thoroughly Jesus disarmed Satan. And we wrestle this with this every day, don't we? The sin and the guilt and the shame that tears at our hearts. And Paul is like, listen, I'm making up words here. Jesus completely freed you from the realm of Satan's power. He is super, totally disarmed. He has nothing left torture you with. It's gone. It's taken care of. Here's number six. He exposed Satan's inferiority. You see there in verse 15 he says he put him to open shame. I love this part. Because there is a fantastic reversal that is happening here. Because, can you remember back to just a few minutes ago? Who was being put to open shame just a few minutes ago? Anybody remember? Us! We were. Don't you remember? The record of our sin on that tablet, public, for everyone to see. Now it's reversed. Now Jesus says, I'm putting Satan to open shame. I am exposing his inferiority. Do you know when Jesus really exposed Satan's inferiority? Do you know when? Do you know what, at what moment? At the moment when Jesus rolled the stone away himself from that tomb and got up and walked out. When he rose from the grave, he exposed Satan's inferiority. You see, on Friday night, Satan is like, I've done it. I've done it. He's dead. And then what happened on Sunday morning? Jesus walks out. Guess what? His inferiority is exposed. His weakness is exposed. I love watching football. Love watching the NFL. One thing drives me crazy about watching the NFL. Seems like over the last few years. Every time anybody does anything, just does what they're supposed to do, just makes a tackle, just sacks the quarterback, just makes a big catch, then we got to sit there for 10 or 15 seconds and watch the big celebration. You know what I'm talking about? I'd break it down for you, but you know what I'm saying? The big celebrations and these guys are strutting around and if they've tackled somebody, sometimes they stand over like, yeah, what? Come on, that's all you got? 
and they're chest bumping and whatever, and I'm thinking, you're getting paid 10 million bucks. Just sack the guy and walk back to the line and do it again. That's your job. The arrogance. So much so that now there's, a, there's three pages in the NFL rule book about taunting. And they get penalties for it. But I got thinking about that. What are they doing? They're doing it because they've exposed their opponent's inferiority. Like, you thought you were coming through here? Not today, buddy. Jesus exposed Satan's inferiority when he rose from the grave, but there was one difference. There was no arrogance. Because there didn't need to be. Jesus just walked out of the tomb, and it was done. He put him to an open shame. And here's the seventh thing. He confirmed Satan's defeat. Right at the end there of verse 15 in Colossians 2, it says that he triumphed over him. Um, in this culture, if a king went out to war and won the victory, he would come back into his home city or town or kingdom and often he would take prisoners from the defeated, you know, from his enemies, he would take prisoners and he would march them through the city to show his superiority over them. And often, not only would he strip them of their weapons and their armor, but often he would strip them of their clothes too. And he would march them through the streets. You know why? Just the sheer humiliation factor. Just to confirm that he had defeated them. To confirm that he had triumphed over them. And God does that for us. Satan is defeated, his inferiority is exposed. And that is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. There's no way that Satan can come back at you with your sin, because I have defeated him, I've wiped the slate clean, I have exposed his inferiority, I have confirmed that he has been defeated, it's over. The death of Jesus obliterates your guilt and shame. So what should you do in light of this? I'm a firm believer in that if the Bible tells us something like this, we should be thinking about our response to it. What should I be doing? Because Jesus has done this for me, what should I be doing? Here's the first thing. Give thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus, which allows you to live in freedom from guilt and shame. You should be thankful for it, friends. Because without him, this is not possible. Without him, you have no escape. Without Jesus, you are guilty. I told you this a few minutes ago when we started. I'm going to tell you again. Folks, listen to me. 
Our guilt and shame is deserved. It serves a purpose. And the purpose is to point us to Christ. Thankfully, because of the gospel, we don't live there. But we need to know that we need Christ. And we come to that realization, give thanks for it, which allows you that freedom. Here's the second thing that we need to do in light of Jesus obliterating our guilt and shame. We need to extend grace and forgiveness to others. Because you know what Christ has done for you, you knew to extend grace and forgiveness to others. Hey, you know what? I bet you get wronged every day. We all do. The question is, how do you respond? We wronged God. Our sin is offensive to Him. And He responded to us with grace and forgiveness. And we need to do the same for others. Here's the third thing that we should do in light of this is use our freedom to glorify Jesus. Use your freedom to glorify Jesus. Can I tell you something, folks? Please, please, please do not take advantage of God's love and mercy and grace. Don't take advantage of it. Don't take it for granted, okay? It would be tempting for us to say, well, because of what God's done for me, I guess I can do whatever I want. And I don't have to feel sin and shame. I don't have to feel that guilt. Please do not presume upon the grace and the forgiveness of Almighty God. Does God have to extend grace to us? No, He does not. That is the nature of grace. He chooses to do it. Don't presume upon that. Don't take it for granted. But serve Him humbly and sacrifice everything for His sake because of what He's done for you. That's what we do when we celebrate communion. We're going to commemorate that sacrifice this morning. We're going to celebrate it. We're going to give thanks for it. I want to read you a couple of verses from Hebrews 10 as we prepare for communion this morning. Hebrews 10:16 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And listen to this last phrase. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no more offering for sin. That's why we don't come to church on Sunday mornings and we don't bring sacrifices. We don't bring animals to offer. We don't have to ritually cleanse ourselves like the Israelites used to do every time they touched something that was unclean, every time they sinned. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus paid for our sin. Where sacrifice or forgiveness of these is, there is no longer any offering for sin because our sin is nailed to the cross and our souls are healed by his scars, by what he has done for us. In just a moment, the guys are going to come and as they do that, they're going to pass out these plates that have 
bread on them. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've experienced that forgiveness that he gives us, then I would encourage you to take one of those pieces, bow your head and offer him thanks for what he has done for you, and then go ahead and eat it. After they do that, they're going to pass around some other trays that have cups of juice in it. Those juice, those cups recognize or symbolize the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Jesus did this the first time with his, with his disciples before he went to the cross. And he said, guys, I want you to do this often. Often. When you're together, I want you to do it to remember what I've done. Here's what happens. We go about our lives. You may get up this morning after this service. We'll spend a few more minutes. We'll sing another song. We'll pray. You'll go out. You'll have a snack. You'll talk to somebody. And then you'll go out. And you may forget all about the sacrifice of what God has done for you through Christ. So Jesus said, guys, I want you to do this often so that you remember me. You remember what I've done. So we're going to pause quietly. We're going to remember what Christ has done for us. We're going to thank him for it. When you get the bread, when you get the cup, go ahead when you're ready, eat it, drink the cup as symbols of what Christ has done. And after we're done that, we're going to sing a song together. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that without Jesus, we are dead. We're dead. We're corpses. We're lifeless. Thank you for everything that you have done through Jesus to obliterate our guilt and shame. Thank you for canceling the record of our sin and our debt. Thank you for triumphing over Satan, for confirming his defeat. Would you give us the courage and the strength to live like that, Father? To live in light of what Christ has done, what you have done in our lives, the change that you have made. This morning as we take this bread and this cup, mere symbols, of course, shadows of the great sacrifice that was given, we do it with thankful hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Father, we stand before you this morning and we humbly acknowledge, I humbly acknowledge, I don't want to speak for everyone, I humbly acknowledge that I do not deserve this freedom that you have given me. I deserve the sin, or I deserve the shame and the guilt because of my sin. I thank you for this wonderful gift that you have given. With a humble heart, I ask that you would continue to lead me to be your servant, to bring honor and glory to you. And if I could, Father, I pray the same for this church as a family, as we bond our hearts and lives together, and as we lift our voices to you this morning. We give thanks for the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you for nailing our sin to the cross. Thank you for openly triumphing over Satan. And I pray that we would in turn humbly serve this community and all those you place in front of us starting five minutes from now that we would glorify you with our lives. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you, folks. I hope you have a great week.